Good evening, church family. It's so good to end off the Lord's Day together. I trust that you've been as encouraged as I am by this Lord's Day and just sitting under the preaching of the Word, being among God's people. Thank you also to Nick and the team for the way that you've led us today. It's been such an encouragement. If you do have your Bibles, please turn me to Genesis chapter 42. We're carrying on in our series in the life of Joseph, and we're looking at the next three chapters Not tonight, but uh, in these next three chapters, they really fit together. Uh, Genesis 42, 43, 44. It's a long narrative that fits together. And in this narrative, we see how God slowly but surely brings reconciliation to Jacob's family. Uh, In these three chapters, uh, we see Joseph test his brothers three times. And it's through these tests in which he challenges or exposes their hearts. He challenges them in their sin. And it's through these tests ultimately that he leads them slowly but surely to repentance and reconciliation. And so that's why I've called this, this the sermon and the next two, The Road to Reconciliation. Because in these three chapters, in these three tests, God is working out in the lives of these men Uh, to bring about reconciliation, forgiveness, and ultimately repentance. Uh, Let's look to our passage, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 42, the entire passage. Let's read together. This is God's word. Let's hear it. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brothers, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And he said, And they said, We are your servants, our twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. 
On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. For if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest of you go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies in the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you, have, that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I'll deliver your, young, your, your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put them in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he, said to, but he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should, harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Only so far in the reading of God's Word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Holy Father, as we've just read your Word, we come this evening with this conviction that your Word is perfect, that your testimonies indeed are sure, that your precepts are right, that your commandments are pure. 
And so therefore we ask you, Lord, having read it, we pray that you'd revive our souls, that you'd make us wise, that you'd rejoice our hearts, and that even you'd enlighten our eyes to see wonderful things of you in your word. Help us in our need. Give us your grace. Magnify your Son, we ask in his name. Amen. In his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis makes this comment. It's a very well-known passage, well-known quote. I'm sure you've heard it many a time. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In a sense, I'd suggest to you, that's what God is doing in this chapter. God, in what we would call painful providence, is shouting to these brothers. Perhaps that's a little bit surprising to you this evening. In this passage, we see that God has not forgotten these brothers of Joseph. We've seen how God has been with and for Joseph. Well, here we see that God is with and for these brothers. Because in painful providence, he shouts out to them. He convicts them. Make no mistake about it, these are wicked, sinful, vile men. Not only have they sold their brother into slavery and lied to their father, but the picture painted of these men up until this point in Genesis is not pleasant. In Genesis 34, Simeon and Levi commit mass genocide. They, they slaughter the Shemites. And while the, uh, while the others are dead, or while uh, that, that genocide is committed, the other brothers plunder dead bodies. In, in Genesis 35, Reuben, the firstborn son, the supposed leader of the pack, he commits an abomination. He lies with his father's concubine. In Genesis 38, Judah not only uh, marries a Canaanite woman and has children with her, but ends up abandoning his daughter-in-law. And what is worse, when after some deception, he sleeps with her and, and commits another abomination. See, these brothers are no saints. No, they are violent, immoral, wicked sinners who deserve to be abandoned, who deserves God's wrath, wrath and condemnation. Yet God in this chapter does not abandon them. Just as God did not abandon Joseph in his affliction, so too God does not abandon these men in their sin because he draws near to them with painful providence. He shouts to them. He awakens their guilty conscience. He reveals to them their sin and their need. See, God does not abandon sinners. And that should be a tremendous comfort to us this evening. Because each one of us deserve condemnation and we deserve to be abandoned by God because we're no better than these brothers. I think we've mentioned this before, but in the story of Joseph, we aren't Joseph, right? We've said that a number of times. Who we are, perhaps, are these brothers. 
Like these brothers, we are selfish and envious and deceptive. We are consumed by lust. We desire power. We are activated by anger. We commit heinous and sinful sh- and shameful sins. And we think we can hide it all. Perhaps you're here tonight and you are a hardened unbeliever. You know it. You've proudly pursued your sin. You've delightfully indulged in the poison of sin. And the result is your conscience is deadened. It's hardened. That you care little for right and wrong. You care for what brings you pleasure. Know this. This evening, this passage is for you. But perhaps you're here tonight and you are a backslidden Christian. You've shamefully fallen into sin. You've dined at the table of sin. You've delighted in its pleasures. And the result is your conscience has been defiled. It's been seared. This closeness of God is distant. You no longer feel this intimacy. You no longer feel this communion with God because of your sin. Well, no, this, this chapter also is for you. See, this chapter is good news to both the dead sinner and the defiled saint because it shows us that God does not give up on sinners, but will shout to them if he has to. He will shout to them in painful providence so that their conscience would wake from its sinful slumber and so that their conscience would turn again to God for help. As we turn to our passage, I want you to see three ways in which God shouts at sinners. Three ways in which God uses painful providence to awaken the dead and defiled conscience. First, I want you to see that God shouts to sinners through desolation. He shouts to sinners through desolations. You see that in verse 1 to 5. With desolation, I mean uh, the famine, this famine that has brought desolation to the land of Egypt. There's a scarcity of food and and life. And, And now this famine has reached even the land of Canaan and now even to the household of Jacob. In verse 2, we see that, that Jacob tells his son to, sons to go to Egypt and buy grain so that they may live and not die. That's how bad things are. But this life-threatening famine really matches, I think, the lifelessness of these brothers. Notice what he says to his sons in verse 1. Why do you look at one another? The idea there is this, these brothers are quite helpless. Uh, Life is difficult and they're just sitting there staring at each other, lifelessly, helplessly, uselessly. Which is quite ironic, don't you think? Throughout Joseph's story, Joseph's been hardworking, whether in Potiphar's house or in prison or in Pharaoh's palace. Joseph has been busy, he's been hardworking, he's been faithful, he's been fruitful. Yet these brothers, when we get to see them again, they just sit there inactive. They were once very active, very busy bodies, but now they just sit there almost lifelessly. Now, we're not told the reason for this, but I would surmise that this is the result of their sin. Sin, we would do well to remember, robs us of life. It robs us of strength, of joy, of peace, of health. 
Listen to how David describes it himself in Psalm 32, verse 3 to 4. For when I kept silent, that is silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Oh, consider Psalm 38 verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. That's where these brothers find themselves. Sin has robbed them of all their life, all their strength, all their peace, and they just sit there helplessly. You can even imagine that, that when their father mentioned the word Egypt, they even went dead or still. Because they knew who they sent to Egypt. And so they stare there. They cannot help but sit there and, as if dead men and stare at one another. But let us remember that God is even at work there. God has been at work every step thus far. God has sent Joseph to Egypt and exalted him there. And now God has sent this famine to Canaan to drive these men to Egypt. This famine is the first step to the road of reconciliation because it takes these, these sinful brothers and forces them to meet their sin head on. Forces them to Egypt. Yes, in one sense, Jacob sends them to Egypt so that in their need they would buy food. But in another deeper sense, God is sending them to Egypt so that in their need they would humble themselves and find not food but forgiveness. And realize that's often how God works. He often brings desolation. He, he often brings us to the end of ourselves so that we would be humbled in our need and so that we rely upon Him. E even that we would come face to face with our iniquities. See, that desolation could be a famine. It could be cancer. It could be death. It could be unemployment. It could be loneliness. It could be a whole bunch of famines. But whatever the famine is, know this, God allows it in life so that in our helplessness we return to Him. That we would look to Him for strength. Uh, let's be honest, for many of us, for many of us, the only time we really turn to God, the only time we really give Him any real thought is when desolation hits is when He brings us helplessly to our knees. And dear friend, the question really is for you, what desolation has God brought to you? What desolate season has He allowed you to enter into? Is it perhaps the case that God has laid you low in desolation so that you would in your need look beyond yourself? That you'd look up to Him, as you look to the rock that is higher than you. I would argue this is what God often does. He allows desolation to draw us to Himself. Consider what He says in Jeremiah 31.18. I've heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. 
See, God shouts to sinners through their painful providence. He brings them to a desolate place. He disciplines them, perhaps even through it, so that they would cry out to Him in their need, that they'd cry out to their God for restoration. So that's the first thing I want to say. God shouts to sinners through, through desolation. Secondly, I want you to see that God shouts out to sinners through distress. Through distress. In verse 6 to 26, we've, we find that the brothers are in Egypt, and lo and behold, they meet their long-lost brother. But of course, they don't know it's Joseph. Uh, which makes sense, right? It's been 20 years since they last saw him. He looks completely different. He looks, speaks, smells, and dances like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him. But he immediately recognizes them. I mean, how could they not recognize him? These are the brothers who, who mercilessly cast him aside when he cried out to them to not do this. They couldn't care. And their face value, it seems that, that he does what every single one of us would probably do. He's harsh. It seems quite vindictive. He, he speaks roughly to them. He accuses them three times of being spies. He, he binds them up and throws them into prison. And then he even makes this ridiculous command that they need to bring their younger brother to him. He has been quite harsh. Yet, but may I suggest to you that, that behind Joseph's frowning face is actually a caring heart. We see three times in these chapters uh, that three times he weeps secretly for his brothers. This is the man who loves. This is a man who, who sees his brothers and he still loves them despite their hideous sin. Uh, David Kingdom makes this point. In, in these three chapters, these brothers, or Joseph appears as a, a wise and compassionate physician of souls. See, just as a doctor uh, would run a series of tests to, to, to discern the problem, so Joseph tests his brothers. Three times he, he tries to discern their motives, their character, their heart, so that by God's grace, they would be healed and the family restored. In, in fact, I think the light, mom, the light bulb moment for Joseph must have been verse 9. Look at what he says there. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now realize, Genesis 42 isn't the fulfillment of his dreams. His dreams included all his brothers and his parents bowing before him. That's not happening here. The point is this. At this moment, Joseph realizes, wait a minute, God is in control. He's planned this. This is how his plans are working out. He's been busy thus far. And if he's busy, been busy thus far, he will be busy still. And, and so what we see in, in Genesis 42 to 44 is that Joseph, with God's wisdom, works out God's plan for his family. And in particular, in verse 9 to 28, God in His providence and, and through Joseph here places these brothers in circumstances quite similar to that of Joseph. It's actually quite amazing to see the, the parallels between Joseph and his brothers. Here. Just as Joseph had, had spied on them in Genesis 37 verse 2, they now are accused of being spies. 
Just as Joseph was forced to become a slave and a servant, they now are forced to yield themselves as servants. You see them in verse 11. Just as Joseph was at the mercy of a slave master, now they are at the mercy of this Egyptian governor, verse 14. Just as Joseph was bound and cast into prison for three years, they now are bound and cast in prison for three days, verse 17. Just as Joseph was a brother they willingly left behind, they too now are forced to leave another brother behind. Now, just put yourself in their position. Place yourself in their sandals. When they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites, they knew they were heading to Egypt. And so now, as they find themselves in Egypt to trade, as they no doubt see all the slaves around them, they must have thought, that's what my brother must have experienced. Even as they are treated harshly, even as they are bound as slaves, they must have thought, this is what Joseph must have experienced. This is what our brother had to endure because of us. See, throughout this ordeal, through the sights and sounds and the shackles of Egypt, God was busy working conviction in the hearts of these brothers. And we know this because of verse 21. Uh, they, told, they told Joseph in verse 11 that we are quote-unquote honest men. Yet they say this in verse 21. In truth, they just say, in all honesty, we are guilty. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul. We saw his anguish. We saw his fear. We saw the troubled nature of our little brother Yet when we saw the distress of his soul, when he begged us, we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Do you see what God is doing in these brothers? God is awakening their conscience. He's, he's brought them to the conviction of sin. He's brought them to see the real guilt that is on them, the shame that is theirs for, because of their sin. He's helped them to even see that now they're paying for their sin. And notice, not only does God bring them to remorse over their sin, He helps them recognize that their sin is fundamentally against them, against Him. In verse 28, after Joseph shows them grace and gives them back their money and sends them off, they find this money in their sack, and we are told that their hearts fail them. Literally, their hearts leave them. They're so shocked, they're, they're terrified, they're trembling in despair, in fear, in distress. And at that point, they say this, what is this that God has done? That's the first time in Genesis that they mention God's name. It's the first time they come to fear God. And, and dear friends, I think that's the point for us this evening. God often awakes guilty consciences by plunging them into distress. God often allows us to see our sin as against Him by afflicting us with shame and fear over our sin. Why? So that we would seek Him. Isaiah 26, 16 says this, O Lord, in distress they sought you. 
They poured out a whispered prayer when you discipline, when your discipline was upon them. See, God allows us to go through these painful providences, the stress that weighs heavy upon us, so that we would see actually our sin. Uh, by God's grace, He's allowed me to see this firsthand. I remember in my previous church, uh, one week, uh, during the week, one lady came to the church office randomly, and uh, she, I sat down with her, and she was quite visibly upset. Uh, she was crying, you could see that. And, and she told me that her mom had recently died. And, and since her death, she had been an absolute mess. Uh, she, I can't think of a better word to describe than distress. She, and this distress flowed from anger, uh, flowed from guilt, flowed from grief over uh, the relationship she had with her mom and just remorse over all that was said and all that wasn't said. And she essentially was broken. And she came to me, what must I do with, with this? What must I do with this anger? How can I get rid of this, this remorse, this, this guilt? And of course, I tried to comfort her with the fact that our God is a God of compassion. Our God is a God who is present in trouble. He's a God who forgives, who cleanses us. But then I also made the point that perhaps, perhaps the Holy Spirit is purposely making you feel this. Perhaps God, want, God wants you to, to feel guilt. Perhaps He wants you to feel remorse. Now, I don't recommend that approach. She was quite upset with me, uh, and reasonably so, and, and she was quite gentle. She just dismissed what I said, and I told her to come to church, and she didn't after that, uh, and the meeting ended a little bit awkwardly. Well, a few months later, she pitched again, and this lady that was sobbing, that was weighed heavy by grief and guilt, was joyful. She was happy. She was thankful, and the reason was obvious. She came to Saving Faith. Uh, she listened to sermons, she read books, she prayed, and she came to know God. And it was my joy to lead her through baptism, and she became a member, even saw her two weeks ago, and she's still serving. And my point is this, don't dismiss the stress. God at times purposely afflicts us. God at times will weigh us down with grief and guilt over our sin. Why? So that godly grief can lead to repentance. That's what Paul tells us, right? 2 Corinthians 7. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And so even as we consider that, we need to ask ourselves, has God at times produced guilt and distress in your heart over your sin? Perhaps it's been when you've listened to a sermon. Perhaps it was even this morning as you were convicted by our sin and you were challenged again to, to greater faithfulness and responsibility. Perhaps it was when your sin was exposed and people called you out on your sin. Perhaps it was when you saw the sins of others and you know in your heart of hearts you've done the exact same thing, if not more. See, if God has brought about that conviction, if He has pricked your conscience, don't brush it aside. Don't suppress it. Don't ignore it. God shouts to guilty sinners in their distress, and the question for us is, are we listening? 
So he wants us to see and feel our grief and our guilt so that we turn to him in his grace. As a God who does bring healing, as a God who does lift the guilt. See, the point is this God speaks and calls out to sinners through painful providence, even the distress of your heart. Again, David is a good example for us in this Psalm 25, 16 to 18. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. See, God wants us at that point to call out to him. And so know this, God shouts out to sinners through distress. Thirdly, I want you to see that God shouts out to sinners through disgrace. You see that in verses 27 to 38. Uh, the brothers return to their father. Uh, in verse 27 to 34, they repeat everything that's gone before. And they mention that the Egyptian governor was quite harsh with them and they, he wants Benjamin to go with them. Uh, interestingly, they, they, they again say uh, that they're honest men three times. They don't mention anything of the guilt. But what is more interesting is that Jacob doesn't buy that they're honest men. Look at, look at verse 36. You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon now is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Even though Jacob doesn't know what actually happened with Joseph, the idea seems to be here that he knows his sons. He knows their character. He knows that these are wicked men. He knows that they're not honest. And look at the devastating words he tells them, verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to take, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Just, just imagine now what those brothers must have felt. Here is your father, and he cares nothing for you. He only cares for one son, and if he doesn't have that one son, then it doesn't matter who you are. Now, we know these brothers are to blame, right? They, they have sinned. They have done what is evil. They know their father is right. They have bereaved him of his child. But can you imagine the disgrace, the, the sense of failure, the sense of disappointment? Uh, and I suggest you, even there, even in this disgrace, God is working on these brothers. Even in their shame, He's calling them out because we know that after this point, actually, they start acting like noble men. Uh, Judah in particular, I, I won't get into Judah tonight, we'll leave that for another time. But again, the point is this, God speaks and calls out to sinners through painful providence, even disgrace. And, and can I say, to my shame, I have first-hand experience of this as well. 
In my early 20s, I was definitely in a backslidden state. I was in varsity. I remember regularly going out with friends to gigs and drinking and getting drunk. And can I tell you what God used to, to bring me back to himself? Uh, I'd gone out one Friday night, been drinking with the friends again. I hadn't told anyone where I was. The next morning, I came back around 7 o'clock, and I found my mom in her room, in her bed, sobbing. Sobbing. And I go close to, to console her, find out what's going on, and she just looks at me with anger and just shoves me away. You cannot even imagine the disgrace. Can you imagine the disgrace and the shame of that moment? Well, dear friends, I praise God for that disgrace. We should praise God when He brings us to the depths of our sin and to our shame because it's at those moments that He saves us. At that moment, that very morning, I remember sobbing out to the Lord for mercy and clinging to Him. Did you see what God will do with painful providence? Did you see what He will do to call guilty sinners to Himself? He will use painful providence to shout out to us. He will allow desolation, distress, disgrace that we would see and feel the hideousness, hideousness of our sin and turn to Him for salvation. Uh, that's what God is doing in His brothers. He's awakened them with desolation. He's terrified them in their disgrace, distress. He's shamed them with disgrace that they would feel and see their sin. And that's where the chapter ends. It ends with them seeing their sin. And the question is, what will they do now with their sin? And that's the question for every single one of us. What will you do with your sin? And herein is the beauty and the wonder of the gospel because we do not have a father who looks at us and doesn't care for us. We see a father who in our sin cares for us and he gives us his son, his only begotten son, to bear our sin-bearing substitute to take our place and to pay for our sin so that we would be reconciled to Him, so that He would not look upon us with disgrace, but with favor, because He's clothed us with the righteousness of His Son. See, God not only shouts to sinners through desolation and distress and disgrace, no, He, he shouts out to sinners. He calls out at them, at the death of his son at the cross of Calvary. At the cross, he shouts to sinners, look at my son. Look at what he's done. Look at his suffering, his sorrow, his sacrifice. He knew all about desolation. He was betrayed, his body broken. He knew all about distress. He, he knew the anguish of a heart that was troubled. He, he knew the wrath of God on him. He knew all about disgrace. He hung naked on that cross, only clothed with our sin. And he experienced all of that, not so that he would feel and see his sin, but that he would save us from ours. 
so that we not be drowned in our sin. So if you're a wicked sinner, if you're like these brothers, you've committed heinous sins, you've fallen short, you've been a disappointment again and again and again, look to the cross of Calvary, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see a Father who doesn't abandon you, but who calls you and provides a Son, and He calls you to believe upon Him. But perhaps you're here tonight, and the question for you, for you isn't... Um, I completely missed all of them. The question for you isn't this evening, what will you do with your sin? No, the question for you is, do you even see your sin? Do you even see and feel your sin? Do you have this weight of sin upon you? Do you, do you have this God-fearing guilt over your sin? You see, in this chapter, Joseph tests his brothers to see their heart, and guess what? They pass the first test because they, unlike, unlike before, now see and feel their sin. And this question is meant, or this chapter is meant to question us and test us. Do you feel and see your sin? Are you perhaps here this, this evening and you're unlike these brothers because your conscience is still, still dead, you're, you're still defiled by sin? Well, well, dear friends, my prayer for you this evening is this. May God show you His grace by afflicting you with His painful providence. Painful providence that wakes you up from your slumber, sinful slumber and drives you to one greater than Joseph, to the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you would find forgiveness and reconciliation. And may God allow you in your painful providence to see His caring heart behind the frowning face of that painful providence. Uh, may Psalm 139 verse 23 be your prayer in your painful providence and may it be our prayer even this evening. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would lead us in the way to everlasting life, that you would lead all of us, even this evening, to your Son, the way, the truth, and the life, that we'd come to believe upon Him and be reconciled to you. Thank you, Father, that you do love us. Thank you that you have sent your Son in love for us. And thank you that He is our sin-bearing substitute, that He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin and who clothes us with beautiful garments of righteousness. I pray for every single person here this evening, whether it is the, the dead sinner or the defiled saint, I pray to you, Lord, that we would turn to Christ, that we'd be bothered by our sin, and that we turn to you in faith in your Son. Help us in this, we pray. Work in our hearts even now. Perhaps even for the unbeliever here, we pray that you'd make them restless until they come to see your light in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.